Welcome back to The Best Movies with Richard Roper and Ro Khan. I'm Ro Khan, afternoon talk show host on WGN in Chicago. And he's Richard Roper, film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times and former co-host of Ebert and Roper. This is the homebound edition. As we're all stuck in our homes, we're going to celebrate movies about people stuck in places they don't necessarily want to be either. That's exactly right, Ro. And when we go through these homebound movies, a caveat right from the start Some of these films are shot entirely in one setting. A couple of them do have a few scenes that take place outside the main setting. But so what? It's our list and we're going to go with it. And I think it's kind of how people are right now. We're homebound most of the time, but once in a while we have a dramatic scene that takes place outside of the home. That is is very true. Some of them more dramatic than others. All right, let's start with the Alfred Hitchcock Lost Classic from 1948, Rope. I've always thought it was uh, out of character for David to drink anything as as corrupt as whiskey. Out of character for him to be murdered, too. (laughs) Yes, wasn't it? Good Americans usually die young on the the battlefield, don't they? Well, the Davids of this world nearly occupy space, which is why he was the perfect victim for the perfect murder. I like the way you described this, Ro, because this is one of those Hitchcock films that when it came out was considered almost, I don't want to say a failed experiment, but an experiment with mixed results. But over the years, people have come to enjoy and appreciate it more. For people who don't know about Rope, it started as a stage play. It takes place almost in real time and in one location. It's about these two kind of snooty intellectual dandies who are inspired by their professor who once talked about how there are theories that you could commit the perfect murder just to see if you could get away with it. In fact, inspired a little bit by the notorious Leopold and Loeb murder case in Chicago of 1924. So they kill a former classmate of theirs. They stash his body away in their apartment, and then they have a party. They have to invite a bunch of guests over that night, including the fiancé of the victim, the father of the victim, And then in one essentially unbroken shot, we see the evening proceed as these guys think they're getting away with murder and then start to wonder if people are onto their game. It's really a psychological thriller. It's an amazing movie. And there are actually 10 different shots in this film. It looks like one continuous shot, however. And that was the whole conceit here is that Hitchcock wanted to do a stage play and make it a film by putting the viewer on the stage inside all the action. And it's also one of Hitchcock's most controversial films because there was an implied gay relationship between the two male leads. And there were theaters throughout the country that wouldn't take the movie. Brandon, how did you feel? When? During it? I don't know, really. I don't remember feeling very much of anything until his body went limp. And I knew it was over. And then? Then I felt tremendously exhilarated. How did you feel? Yeah, implied to say the least. A lot of people saw the writing on the wall, so to speak, and found that to be more repugnant than the murder plot, by the way, which tells you a little bit about the tenor of the times. And you're right, Ro. Hitchcock would go the length of a film camera magazine and then have to change it. He actually did a couple of cuts here to let people know, yeah, we're moving on. It's not a gimmick, but essentially... We're following everybody around throughout this. You know, we see this even as recently as last year with the movie 1917, which is at heart one unbroken shot, but not not technically so, 
or a few years back with Birdman. There are times when the gimmick gets in the way. James Stewart sometimes felt like the rehearsals and everything were for the cameras and not for the actors. But I recently watched it. I got to tell you, it held me in its grips. Oh, yeah. It's very fun to watch all the way through because you want to see where they're cutting. You sort of almost get lost in that once you know the secret. Jimmy Stewart did not like this movie, though. This was his least favorite movie he ever did with Hitchcock. It was 28 minutes before he shows up on screen. He didn't like playing this professor who had really, because of his anti-humanist social philosophy, belief in eugenics, and almost quasi-racist character. A lot of actors want to play against type every now and then. This may have been too much of a different direction for him. After all, murder is, or should be, an art. Not one of the seven lively, perhaps, but an art nevertheless. And as such, the privilege of committing it should be reserved for those few who are really superior individuals. And the victims, inferior beings whose lives are unimportant anyway. Obviously. But Jimmy Stewart is still Jimmy Stewart, and by the end of the movie, he redeems himself. By what right did you dare decide that that boy in there was inferior and therefore could be killed? Did you think you were God, Brandon? Is that what you thought when you choked the life out of him? A mere six years later, Stewart and Hitchcock reunited for a similarly set rear window. This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. This has the greatest kiss scene in all of cinematic history. When Grace Kelly comes in to kiss Jimmy Stewart in the opening scene of the film, you see her approach the camera, and it's as though she's kissing you. Now, it's said that Alfred Hitchcock did this intentionally because he had such an incredible crush on her, as he did pretty much all of his blonde female leads. How's your leg? It hurts a little. And your stomach? Empty as a football. And do you love life? Too active. And Grace Kelly at her elegant best. And she's playing Lisa, who's a socialite, and she's in this relationship with Stewart's character, who's a Jeff Jeffries. I love that name. He's a professional photographer. So the conceit here is he's got a broken leg, so he's recovering in his apartment in Chelsea, which is across a courtyard from a whole building where he can eavesdrop and spy very voyeuristically on all these different neighbors, and he starts giving them names and nicknames and stuff, and everybody's got their windows open because it's a a huge heat wave in New York City before most people would have air conditioning, so he can even hear sounds. You and I have talked a lot about sound mixing and sound editing. The use of sound in this film is incredible as we move from room to room and see different characters, including one large Thorwald traveling salesman played by Raymond Burr, who also might be a murderer. At least one dog gets it. You hate that. And the the great character actress, Thelma Ritter, is in this film. You see her in a lot of film and a lot of television from the 1950s and the 1960s. She's Jimmy Stewart's insurance nurse and is always prattling on about her previous clients. She is the perfect comedic foil. You heard of that market crash in 29? I predicted that. Oh, yes. How did you do that, Sean? Oh, simple. I was nursing a director of General Motors. Kidney ailment, they said. Nerves, I said. Then I asked myself, what's General Motors got to be nervous about? Overproduction, I says. Collapse. 
when General Motors has to go to the bathroom ten times a day, the whole country's ready to let go. It is such a beautifully constructed film. Grace Kelly is perhaps at her most beautiful. And she's very funny and witty. There's this whole social class and comedic subtext about their relationship because he's a working guy and she's this socialite. He's the one that's reluctant to marry her. Talk about fantasy in the movies. But that's the truth because he's worried that that their lifestyles will never mesh. And there are really some funny bits of dialogue and some cool little cutaway shots where you see that he's not wrong about them coming from different worlds. Goodbye, Jeff. Well, you mean good night. I mean what I said. Well, well, Lisa, couldn't we just... uh... Couldn't we just keep things status quo? Without any future. Well, when am I going to see you again? Not for a long time. At least, not until tomorrow night. This movie is probably most emblematic of being stuck at home of all the movies that we're going to talk about here because he is really confined. He's confined to the wheelchair because of his broken leg. He knows he will eventually recuperate. He will eventually go back outside again. But it's that frustration of being stuck inside on a hot day, not able to do his job, not able to go and live his life the way he'd want to live. And it really does catch the spirit of this moment. And if you want to see a wild, exaggerated, sex-soaked version of Rear Window, Palma's Body Double. Here's a movie that takes place all in one room, and you never even notice it. Twelve Angry Men from 1957. What's the matter with you guys? You all know he's guilty. He's got to burn. You're letting him slip through our fingers. Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? I'm one of them. This really is the consummate one room movie row and it's no surprise that there have been so many reiterations and updates on 12 angry men over the years the cast of this one is incredible martin balsam lee j cobb jack klugman jack warden all of whom are jury members who at the beginning believe the 18 year old accused of stabbing his father to death is slam dunk no doubt about it guilty let's just get this thing over with it's a hot day in new york Everybody wants to just get home. One guy wants to get to the ball game that night. But then you have Henry Fonda's character who says, wait a minute, guys. We're talking about a life here, a young life. Let's at least go through the circumstances of the case. Perhaps you'd like to pull the switch. Well, this kid, you bet I would. I feel sorry for you. What it must feel like to want to pull the switch. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. You want to see this boy die because you personally want it, not because of the facts. You're a sadist. And it's just fascinating to see the various arguments unwind and to learn about these characters and various reasons they have for wanting this guy to be guilty or various things they bring to the table. Probably most famously, Lee J. Cobb, who's the one who's really pushing for this guy to be guilty. And we learn that he's got a son of about the same age who he's completely estranged with and who has been a disappointment to him and he's projecting on him. Just brilliantly done. You lousy bunch of bleeding. You're not going to intimidate me. I'm entitled to my opinion. Rotten kids, you work your life out. It's a really sly social commentary, too, about a lot of the same issues that we deal with right now in the 2020s. They were dealing with back in the 1950s. When you watch it, you'll recognize all these American archetypes, people who were indignant, set in their ways, and then bleeding heart types all mixing together. And the beauty of this is Henry Fonda's character. He becomes the soul and the conscience of America. 
Absolutely true. And we don't even know the names of these characters until the famous, famous last scene that finally does take us out of that jury room. None of these guys are ever going to see each other again, but they're never going to forget that one day in that New York County courthouse. For our next homebound film, films shot in a single location. We're cheating a little bit here. From 1975, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out? I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Well, you're not. There are a number of scenes not in the insane asylum, but it doesn't get any more claustrophobic than this movie. This was actually shot at the Oregon Mental Hospital. That was the setting for the novel. Probably not that surprising for people to learn if they didn't know This was also a huge Broadway play before it became a movie. Kirk Douglas had originated the role of Randall McMurphy on Broadway, bought the film rights, eventually gave them to his son or sold them to his son, Michael Douglas, who became the producer for this. And then it did win the big five. Best actor, best actress for Louise Fletcher as Nurse Ratched, best director for Milos Forman, best picture and best adapted screenplay. This has got so much to say, Ro about stereotypes and class warfare and the whole notion of what it means to be mentally ill. And there are so many interesting reveals in this movie about the other patients there, some of whom might really need to be in that mental hospital, others who really don't need to be there. Would you like to rest today or would you like to join the group? Uh, oh, I'd love, love to join the group. I, I'd like, I'm proud to join the group, Eldred. <clears throat> The Nicholson performance is a great performance, the perfect marriage of actor with role, because that was Jack at the height of his bad boy, Jack Nicholson, rebel with the raised eyebrow type of thing that became almost imitated, and he almost started imitating it in later years, but he's great in this movie. What's the matter with you? Do you want to watch the World Series? Come on, get your hands up to do you some good to get some exercise, putting your arms up in the air. That's it. Come on, let's... What is this crap? I mean, I, am, I watch the series. I, watch, I haven't missed the series in years. Even in the cooler. When I'm in the cooler, they run it in there. They have a riot. What's the matter with you guys? Come on, be good Americans. As is Louise Fletcher, who, as Nurse Ratched was so convincing, people were shocked to find out that she was actually one of the sweetest, loveliest people you'd ever meet. Sort of changed her career trajectory, I think, because such an amazingly powerful debut but I think that she lost a lot of parts because of that especially romantic leads I think it's a a similar thing happened to Kathy Bates you know after misery but Kathy Bates was just determined by a sheer force of will to remind everybody how funny she could be and how silly she could be and it it took a while but she did overcome that for various reasons I don't think Louise Fletcher unfortunately enjoyed the same second act level of career In the same vein, a movie about people stuck in a place they don't think they have to be. From 1985, The Breakfast Club. Face, you're a neo-maxi Zoom dweeby. What would you be doing if you weren't out making yourself a better citizen? Why do you have to insult everybody? I'm being honest, asshole. I would expect you to know the difference. A brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse, all spending that one Saturday at Shermer High School 
for detention. And this is a film that at the time was kind of revolutionary, Ro, because yes, it's a John Hughes film. Yes, we get some comedic numbers and some dance numbers and the music you always got. But it was at heart this psychological drama about five kids who had been stereotyped and then all the walls break down and they learn all these essential truths about one another. It's probably at least as much of a drama as it is a comedy. What would your friends say if we were walking down the hall together? They'd laugh their asses off, and you'd probably tell them that you were doing it with me so they'd forgive you for being seen with me. Don't you ever talk about my friends. You don't know any of my friends, you don't look at any of my friends, and you certainly wouldn't condescend to speak to any of my friends. So you just strip to the things that you know. Shopping, nail polish, your father's BMW, and your poor, rich, drunk mother in the Caribbean. Shut up! And you have one of the great archetypal bad guys in any kind of high school drama, the assistant principal Richard Vernon, played by Paul Gleason. My office is right across that hall. Any monkey business is ill-advised. Any questions? Yeah, I got a question. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Give you the answer to that question, Mr. Bender, next Saturday. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. I love, of course, the world of the John Hughes movies. This is set at Shermer High School, which was actually, in real life, they shot it at a shuttered high school in suburban Chicago. This is the same school that Ferris Bueller went to. I wonder if he knew these kids. And Samantha from 16 Candles also went to Shermer High School, which is really confusing because she was played by Molly Ringwald, who's also Claire in this movie. What is even happening? You know, the main thing we remember from that is these five terrific young actors who really got a chance to do more than you usually get to do even in a John Hughes movie because there were these long scenes, all dialogue in that library. You're like full of yourself. Why are you like that? I'm not saying that to be conceited. I hate it. I hate having to go along with everything my friends say. Well, then why do you do it? I don't know. I don't... You don't understand. You don't... You're not friends with the same kind of people that Annie and I are friends with. You know, you just don't understand the pressure that they can put on you. I don't understand what? You think I don't understand pressure, Claire? Well, fuck you! Fuck you! Emilio Estevez and Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy, Molly Ringwald, as you mentioned, Anthony Michael Hall, all great and almost operatic performances by kids who are just teenagers themselves. Our next film features a kid who also lived in the Shermer High School School District from 1990, Home Alone. And this is a film written by John Hughes, actually directed by Chris Columbus, but certainly has that John Hughes feeling. And this film, when it came out in 1990, was an enormous hit. In fact, the highest grossing live action comedy ever at the time, They held on to that record, I think, until the first Hangover movie, more than 20 years. It's the classic, what they talk about, like the elevator pitch for a movie. Family runs off to go on their big Christmas vacation and leaves the youngest son home alone. And there we go. And Macaulay Culkin, he was the cutest kid ever as Kevin, who finds himself home alone while the parents and his 8,000 brothers and sisters and the idiot uncle and the rest of them are all jetting off to vacation. Heather, did you count heads? Eleven, including me. Five boys, six girls, four parents, two drivers, and a partridge in a pear tree. And this is another movie that, yes, there are scenes, obviously, 
outside of the home. There's a very pivotal scene actually in a church. Remember the next door neighbor who was named Marley, no accident for a Christmas movie, who had been such a terror, at least in Kevin's eyes. He thought this guy was the scariest man in the world. Then he finds out that Marley's a lonely old man who needs to be reunited with his son. That's a really touching scene in this movie. You live next to me, don't you? You can say hello when you see me. You don't have to be afraid. There's a lot of things going around about me, but none of it's true. Okay? Been a good boy this year? I think so. You swear to it? No. Yeah, I had a feeling. Well, this is the place to be if you're feeling bad about yourself. It is? I think so. The bulk of the movie was actually filmed in the Chicago suburb of Winnetka, Illinois, and then the soundstage was the site of Uncle Buck and Ferris Bueller interiors. But I remember going to that home, that real-life home row, after the movie became such a huge hit, and I was surprised to see how much of the home from the main staircase to the attic to the treehouse in the backyard, which had been built for the movie, all of that was actually on site, and the home had become a huge tourist attraction, which it is to this day people go to the home alone home the couple that owned it back in 1990 only recently sold it and my understanding is the new homeowners are keeping up their tradition of decorating it very similarly to how it looks in the movie i love the fact that we're putting this movie in the homebound edition because those first couple of days of young kevin being stuck at home is similar to the first days people were stuck in their own homes. They're trying to come up with a new routine. They're trying to act as though it's a normal day, <laughs> getting up and shaving. Yeah. I mean, there are so many moments. When you watch this movie again now in the context of how we're all living our lives, it's like super entertaining. I took a shower washing every body part with actual soap, including all my major crevices, including in between my toes and in my belly button which I never did before, but sort of enjoyed. I washed my hair with the Don't Formula shampoo and used cream leaves for that just wash shine. I can't seem to find my toothbrush, so I'll pick one up when I go out today. Other than that, I'm in good shape. That's a great point, because the, the first moment Kevin wakes up and realizes everyone's gone, and at first he's like, oh no, and then he's like, wait a minute, this is the best thing ever. I can watch a gangster movie. I can eat ice cream. I can slap on the cologne. I can have the run of the house. And then just like you're saying, as we're going through, then it's like, well, how long is this going to go on? So Home Alone, it was a happy house. In her next film, not such a happy house, The Others from 2001. What's the matter? Where is my daughter? <laughs> what have you done with my daughter? Are you mad? I am your daughter. You're not my daughter! It's interesting, Ro, when I was talking to people and telling them we were going to do a Homebound Movies edition of the podcast, I kept hearing horror movie suggestions. And I go, well, we don't want to do all just horror movies that are set basically in one house. The Others is more of a supernatural psychological horror film. If you haven't seen it and you love scary movies, you will love this film. I think it's one of Nicole Kidman's best performances. She plays Grace. She is the mother of two young children who have photosensitivity. That means they can't go outside. So she's in the home with her two children. It's post-World War II. Her husband has been killed in the war. So it's just the three of them. Then she hires some servants who used to work in the home, which has a little bit of a history. Then the kids start saying they're seeing things at night. 
lots of things that go bump and maybe even play the piano in the night. Then her husband comes home from the war. We thought he was dead. That's all I'm going to say about this. <laughs> you have to see it to believe it. Yes. It's an excellent point that you're making that we're not choosing horror films that take place in a castle or you have to spend the whole night there in order to get some sort of a prize. Yeah, or the call's coming from inside the house. And I'm like, how can it be coming from inside the house if you're on the only landline in the house? But there are so many movies like that, you know, whether it's Clue or Murder by Death, which are the comedies, or The House on Haunted Hill, those kinds of films. Those are all really great to see, but they don't really catch the spirit of the moment. One of the reasons that we're doing this list is that most, if not all, these films are reminiscent of the emotions that we're all feeling right now. And they're next level filmmaking, I think. You know, listen, I love a good horror film as much as anybody, but like, why bother to do a list of 10 movies where the family moves into the big giant home in the remote woods, the kids start running around, the dog starts barking at the one room that's been locked forever, the dog ends up in a bad place, mom eventually decides to open the door to just find out what's happening in the attic, and then all hell breaks loose. Okay, here's a great example of next level filmmaking from 2002. Panic room. A safe room. Castle keep in medieval times. Ford concrete walls. Buried phone line not connected to the house's main line. You have your own ventilation system and a bank of surveillance monitors that covers nearly every corner of the house. What's to keep someone from prying open the door? Steel. Very thick steel. Panic Room is a David Fincher film, and when you get a David Fincher film, you almost always get an unforgettable movie-going experience. No exception here. Jodie Foster plays a recently divorced mom. She has just moved with her daughter, Sarah, who is played by young Kristen Stewart, into this four-story brownstone on the Upper West Side. They're barely moving in, boxes everywhere, just discovering everything about the home. When three bad guys break in, played by Forrest Whitaker, Jared Leto, and Dwight Yoakam, who was also the bad guy in Sling Blade for a very talented country-type rockabilly singer. He could be a great actor. They know that there are millions in bearer bonds locked away somewhere on the property. So as they start banging through the home, mom and daughter go into the panic room. One of those, you know, you see that sometimes on these TV shows about the rich and famous, a room that's lead-lined that nobody could get into. So even if the power's off, it's still functional. Oh, oh my God. Old Sydney didn't miss a trick, did he? Open it, please. And the kid's like, he's apparently got no wonder he wanted a place to hide. Please open the door. That is highly inappropriate. Open the door, please. The camera work is amazing in this with the four-story brownstone as it moves about and the use of sound. And there's this huge rainstorm going on outside. And the various efforts that the bad guys have trying to flush them out while mom and daughter are countering them with some equally ingenious methods of their own. And just remind people who David Fincher is. He's one of the best directors in Hollywood today. He did Seven, The Social Network, Zodiac, Gone Girl. These are all movies we've talked about in previous episodes. One of the most innovative filmmakers of the last 25 years, as evidenced by that list, Ro, there are certain signature touches, but it's not like he does the same movie or the same genre over and over. Speaking of directors we love, from Quentin Tarantino in 2015, The Hateful Eight. Got room for one more. They call him the hangman. When the handbill says dead or alive, the rest of us just shoot you in the back and up on top of perch somewhere and bring you in dead over a saddle. 
But when John Roof, the hangman, catches you, you hang. Just an absolutely brutal and yet beautiful Western. We do get an extended opening sequence as the Major, who's played by Samuel L. Jackson. He's out there in the middle of the snow trying to transport these dead bounties to Red Rock, Wyoming. And then he comes across his old, I don't want to say pal, but associate, the bounty hunter, John Ruth, played by Kurt Russell. Oh, by the way, John Ruth has Daisy Domergue, the infamous killer, along with him, played by Jennifer Jason Lee. They all end up in this lodge waiting out a snowstorm. But all these other characters are already at the lodge, including a lot of Tarantino regulars, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Bruce Dern. The whole thing unfolds almost like an off-Broadway drama all in this one setting row with some real surprise cameos at the end as well. Doesn't give any of those away. But if you've not seen this movie, you're going to love it. But like Tarantino films, there's some violence. Say adios to your huevos. And finally, from 2016, 10 Cloverfield Lane. No! No! No, no! No! Don't open that door! They're going to get all the kills! Something's coming. This also fits into the category of psychological thriller. It's part of the overall Cloverfield franchise in which some sort of attack or some sort of invasion has occurred in America, maybe around the world, but we see everything from the point of view of the victims or those trying to survive. In this case, Mary Elizabeth Winstead plays Michelle. She breaks up with her boyfriend. She's driving in her car. She starts to hear reports of blackouts and other things happening. Next thing you know, she wakes up in this locked room in a leg brace and then enters one Howard Stambler, played by John Goodman, who explains to her that she got in this accident, he saved her life, and she's now in the bunker beneath his farmhouse. He's a survivalist, and she better not try to go back outside there because really, really horrible things are happening right out of a zombie movie. Now the question is, is this all real, or is he just a nutcase who caused the accident and is holding her hostage And throughout the movie, we're kept guessing about what's really happening outside that bunker. I need to use your phone then to call my family and and tell them that I'm safe here and make sure they're okay. Michelle, they're not okay. How do you know that? Everyone outside of here is dead. And Bradley Cooper is in this film, but you never see him. Michelle. And yet he has a very definite presence. Please say something. Michelle? We think every one of these films is really relevant to what people are going through now. Yes, you can identify, I think, a little bit more than ever with a lot of these characters, whether they want to be inside, are temporarily inside, or really, really can't wait for the moment when they can finally go back outside. Well, that does it for the Homebound edition. Coming up next, as we celebrate the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, And in honor of Memorial Day, we'll look back at the best war films of the past three quarters of a century. Thanks again for listening and all the great reviews. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Best Movies with Richard Roper and Ro Khan. The Best Movies is produced in association with the Chicago Sun-Times. For companion guides to episodes, please visit the Richard Roper page at suntimes.com. Thanks to our associate producer, Brian Altimer, and our technical manager, Brian Ernst. On behalf of Richard Roper, I'm Ro Khan. See you next time.